Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host, Denise Messenger, for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Preserve and protect your health by listening live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining us today. And, of course, today is July 8, 2015. I'm so happy to welcome Dina Proctor back to our show. She's such a, a really fun insightful guest and listeners you have a lot to learn from her she is a mind body connection coach and a speaker and she's also the best-selling author of the book called madly chasing peace how i went from hell to happy in nine minutes a day i just love that title and of course i love her book there's so many good lessons in it Um, particularly when we hit Um, you know, emotional um, rock bottom type situations and we're struggling with, with, you know, either addictions or a lot of uh, sadness in our lives. And so I want to bring her on and get started with our interview. If um, you can't stay with us or you're going to be tuning in a little later for other listeners, um, our broadcast will go into iTunes and so it can be listened to at your leisure and um, we'll also let you you all know how you can purchase her book, Madly Chasing Peace, How I Went from Hell to Happy in Nine Minutes a Day. And so now let me bring on to our show, Dina Proctor. Hello there. Hi, Denise. It's so great <laughs> to share this space with you. I, I, re- I just remember you having such a great energy and a great message in the show, and I think we'll just have a really good time like we did last time. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're both a little crazy. I think we're both a little crazy, but you know, it's a fun crazy. I know, but that's what makes it good. <laughs> <laughs> we've both had our our challenges in life, and and we've come out really happy, and um, you know, with a real desire to help others. And um, sometimes, you know, people can go through really tragic experiences in their lives. And they just don't come out of it. But um, mm-hmm. for those of us who have, it's such a gift that um, we give to others in helping them along their paths. You know, you can call yeah. it enlightenment. You can you can call it, you know, finding finding yourself, um, whatever. You know. So yeah. um, let's kind of talk about you know how you um brought yourself up and out of such such challenges in your in your life and you know what 
what promoted you to to write your book? Well, you know, it's funny because if you would have told me even just five years ago that I was going to be, you know, leaving the day job that I was making good money at and feeling secure at and um, tell my story to more than five people on this planet because the, the you know, addiction <laughs> and depression and all of this that I went through, I had so much shame around mm-hmm. it. You know, it was not something that I ever dreamed of doing. I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I never thought that I could possibly help people. I sure wasn't a writer. And it was not like I I saw myself sharing this um, with people. But the universe just has a way of leading us breadcrumb by breadcrumb. We don't see where we're going until we can connect the dots looking back in hindsight. But my story kind of starts um, towards the end of 2008. That's when I hit my rock bottom points in my life. I was 32, and I had spent my 20s in and out of clinical depression. And I just felt like I had this inner restlessness inside of myself, even since I was a little kid, that I could just never – satisfy, you know, and it turned into different things. Like I would overeat or I would, you know, everything was just to an extreme and I had this perfectionist tendency and, um, you know, I would think, you know, if I just had the perfect job, that'll be what fulfills me. Or if I just find the one and get married, that's going to be what fulfills me. Or if I just make a certain amount of money or help a certain amount of people or travel to a certain amount of countries, like I just had all of these exterior things that I was looking to for that fulfillment. Really, I was looking for inner peace. That's what I was seeking, but I didn't realize that. And, you know, one thing after another thing after another thing was not fulfilling me, and my depression was just really spiraling. My clinical depression was spiraling. And in my late 20s, um, I really fell into heavy, heavy drinking. I'd never been much of a drinker. Um, until I reached this kind of, I I think I just crossed a a line inside of myself, an invisible line of desperation. And because of my emotional desperation, alcohol became a solution to me that had previously, you know, I I previously hadn't really considered it such. But it it became the only thing that would quiet the horrible suicidal thoughts, that would quiet that mind that was just beating myself up all the time. And I became heavily addicted to alcohol. Once I started drinking, I mean, it was a matter of months before I was drinking around the clock, you know, morning, noon, and night. It was just, you know, the addiction kind of took its hold rather quickly. And as I became deeper in my addiction, I became a person that I didn't even recognize and I couldn't live with myself. You know, I was just waking up to way too many, to way too many people that I couldn't remember their first name. And I was stealing money and I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. I couldn't look myself in the eyes just, and, and, one thing after another, I couldn't live with who I was becoming. I didn't know how to quit drinking, but I didn't kind of want to quit drinking because it was the only thing that was making me feel mm-hmm. better in a very sick way. Yeah. So that's when I Numbing your pain. planned a day to take my own life. Yeah, exactly. And that's when I planned my suicide because I thought, I cannot bear to live like this anymore. This is just, I don't know what to do or how to fix it, and I don't even want to. Like, I just want out. That was, you know, Jeez. where we're where my bottom point came. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you, why do you why do you suppose that um stealing kind of goes along with alcoholism? I don't necessarily think that it it does. It's not like I was, you know, I was working a job and alcohol it's not like I was buying super expensive bottles of wine or bottles of alcohol. It was just like a way to get um, it was a way to be naughty. It was a way to be against the norm. It was a way to get away with something. I had all these things where it was like I didn't want to 
I, I was hiding all my drinking and something about that, I, it gave me like a stim to not get caught at stuff or to get away with something. It a, it, it's a sick mentality, but that's really where it was coming from. It was never really about money. It was about look at the look at what I'm pulling over these guys, you know, that sort of thing. It was just what can I get away with type of thing. Yeah, it was just huh. a mentality that I was in. Yeah, and it's funny because now I look back on that with like extreme compassion, but I kind of can't. Mm-hmm. I can't. I, like I can't get myself to understand what it was like to be there anymore because I'm so far removed from where that was. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's just um, with alcoholics, I've kind of noticed noticed that um, they kind of sneak their drinking, and yeah. a lot of times it does involve you know either. You know, stealing, um, or not, you know, getting money and not paying it back to people—that kind of thing. Yeah, it just must yeah. be a really strange place to be in. Really strange. Um, yeah. So you hit bottom. So then, what did you do? Well, I ended up in an addiction recovery program, and at first, I couldn't believe that I belonged there. You know, like I had graduated college. Um, with honors, you know, like straight A grades and all of this, and I just couldn't comprehend how on earth this could have happened to me. How could I possibly belong in a room of fellow addicts? But when I was sharing my story, every person in that room could really understand, from the stealing to the lying to the, you know, the hiding the drinking, the morning drinking, like everybody just got it. And it was the first time in my life, in my life, that I really felt understood, that I really felt that these human beings understand me from the inside. And I realized I'd never really had that before. Even when I had gone to shrinks and therapists, like wonderful, intelligent, well-meaning people, but people that had not experienced where I was, so they kind of couldn't understand it from the inside. These people, like, got it. So anyway, when I went for help and I went to the, or, you know, ended up in the addiction recovery program and finally surrendered and asked for help, the mentor that I chose to lead me through the steps of the program The first thing she told me to do before we even started on, you know, like the the precursor to the steps of the program, she said, Dina, you need to learn to meditate. And I remember looking at her, Denise, and I was just kind of like, like, what's your next idea? Because that's that's ridiculous. I don't think (laughs) meditation is possibly going to do anything at all. Shouldn't I be like, you know, writing letters and burning them or beating on pillows with baseball bats or something? I just totally (laughs) balked at her suggestion. But, you know, she was so tough love with me. She would, we were looking each other in the eyes. We were just, you know, having this conversation face-to-face, and she didn't even blink. And she just said, you know what? Your way doesn't seem to be working. Why don't you try wow. mine? And oh, my gosh. And what was I going to say to that? You know, like, she just, mm-hmm. she, it stopped me. And I said, you know, you're right. I haven't tried meditation. I think it's ridiculous. But you're right. I haven't <laughs> tried it. So I'll try it, right? So, mm-hmm. so her instruction to me specifically was to sit still every morning for 20 minutes and focus on my breathing. And I thought, well, obviously I don't think it's going to do anything, but how hard can it be? I'll try it and prove her wrong, and then we can move on to something that will really work. So I would sit, <laughs> and, you know, for the 20 minutes. This, this is just where I was at the time. That's hard. So in the morning. That hard? Wasn't, that, wasn't that difficult for you to do, just to sit for 20 minutes and well, not do anything? It was impossible. I couldn't. I kept maxing out at about three minutes. So I would sit in the morning, and I would put on my timer like she told me for 20 minutes. I would sit, you know, on my couch. And she didn't tell me to sit in a particular way. All she did was say, focus on your breath. 
So that's what I tried to do. But as soon as I would sit still, all of the negative thoughts, and I was in alcohol withdrawal, my body would start start shaking, sweating. And after three minutes, and I, I really can't even believe I lasted that long at that time, but after three minutes, I would just max out. It would become impossible for me to sit still any longer. But later in the day, it would nag at me. Like, you know, the only thing she told you to do was to sit for 20 minutes. You can't even do that. So I would say, well, maybe I could do a few minutes here and there, and then by the end of the day, I'll be able to tell her, hey, I did my 20 minutes. And it was so interesting because consistently when I would sit down to meditate, the three-minute mark was when it would become intolerable. So I would be three minutes here, three minutes there throughout the day. And I called her and told her, and I said, listen, I don't know why I can't sit for 20 minutes, but I can't. I'm doing this three-minute here, three-minute there thing. Like, is that okay? And she goes, Dina, whatever you can do is great. Just be consistent. So I did. And the most amazing thing happened after about eight weeks of this messy three minute here, three minute there, where I really wasn't even doing anything. Like I would just sit in that, you know, space of quiet and something inside of me was just saying like, just show me, show me what I'm missing. Show me what to do. You know, I was really at that point of desperation, but also surrender. You know, I was just, like, open to being shown the next step or, or what where healing was going to come for me. And after eight weeks, I came out of one, one of my meditations in what I can only describe as a state of higher mm-hmm. consciousness. I was... After my, eight weeks? My, my, what? After how many weeks? It was about eight weeks. About eight weeks into it. So two, it took you two months. Two months. Wow. Yep. Yeah, but that's where, because in this state of higher consciousness, my awareness was floating above and behind my body. So it was kind of like there was this big me, huge energy that was like animating this little finger puppet, which was my body. When I was in that Mm -hmm. state, I had no mind chatter. I had no words in my head. And this state lasted for three whole days. And I was kind of like floating above but tethered to my body. I was going to addiction recovery meetings. I was going to work. I was interacting with, you know, cashiers at the grocery store. And I could see what I was doing. And I just had this, like, deep love and compassion for this little person that I was, like, that I was, but I was, like, tethered to and looking down on. And I just thought, you just talk so much and you don't need so many words. You know, like, I just had this, like, sweet, almost like it's a child, this infinite love nothing's wrong, you know, those those sorts of feelings mm-hmm. I had as the bigger self looking down at my smaller self. And there were two truths, like truths of life that were made known to me at that time. The first one is that there's no such thing as time. Because when I was in this state, it, it was almost like um, I had had this cellophane over my whole body my whole life or this like, you know, like layer that was preventing me from fully being alive or fully being present. Like when I would brush my teeth, it would feel like a massage. It was, you know, it was just like I was so sensory aware. I was so present. I could see the essence and the um, personality of trees and animals and the energies coming off of them in a way I had never seen before. And I knew that there was no such thing as time. And it was like so cute how we run around like so stressed out about time. And there's just, it's, sure. it's a human concept, like it doesn't exist. The other truth that was made known to That's me during true. those three days was that anything that I want to change or fix or heal in my world, in my exterior environment, anything from my body to my finances to my relationships, 
everything in physical reality is nothing but a mirrored reflection of what's going on on the inside. So it was like so clear to me in an instant why I had been unhappy for so many years. I kept changing jobs, upgrading my boyfriends, getting new cars, going to new countries, and but I kept taking myself with me. So I was recreating the same dissatisfying experiences all the time. And I just like had this, you know when you're at a scary movie with a, you know, a three- or a four-year-old, and they're terrified of this big purple monster, and you're like, sweetheart, it's not mm-hmm. real. Like, no, you know, you have so much compassion, and they are freaking out about something. And that's how mm-hmm. I felt about myself and my life. I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I get where that depression came from and where that wanting to die came from. But, like, it's all good. Like, life is really awesome. I could just see it from that kind of, like, broader perspective. And that experience changed. It. Re- I, I really feel like that three-day experience rewired the cells of my body. Like, I just feel like that was a moment where everything shifted for me. And I couldn't not know the stuff I learned during that three-day time period in that state mm-hmm. of higher consciousness. And so that's how 3x3 three three Meditation was born. You know, my book, Health a Happy in Nine Minutes a Day, 3x3 three three Meditation right. stands for three minutes three times a day because my biggest breakthrough is that, and then I've had tons of breakthroughs since then, you know, from weight loss to lowering my cholesterol to transforming my relationships to you know, writing a book and having my own coaching business and all of this, like all of that came from the peace and the inner guidance I get when I sit down in my three-minute meditations. And so now it's kind of evened out to three minutes, three times a day. And I and I assume that it's it's kind of easy for you to do it. At this point, yeah. Because, and at, at uh-huh. this point, it's like I feel off if I don't do it. You know, like it's mm-hmm. kind of like mm-hmm. I feed, I feed my body. It feels weird if you skip a meal and skip two meals, and you just kind mm-hmm. of feel out of it. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel with the meditation. It's not, it's not a replacement addiction. It's not, you know, something unhealthy. It's the way that I nourish myself, the way that I nourish my soul, and plug into my inner source of power, peace, and wisdom. And so I just do that for three times, three minutes, of, you know, three times a day, mm-hmm. and it's, it's amazing. It's so powerful. When you um, initially started uh, meditating and, you know, you you were able to really quiet yourself and, and get in touch with yourself, um, sometimes it will release old memories and those you have to, you know, delicately deal with. Did you experience any of that? Well, I did experience... Um, I, I can't say that I've forgotten anything. I guess if I forgot it, I wouldn't realize I forgot it. But um, <laughs> what, what's happened to me is that I view things in a completely different way. Like, for example, I had a lot of, like, I stole money, right? I stole money from an old job and countless other things and whatever, like little tiny things that I would do, um, just mm-hmm. kind of taking from people and stealing. And But the biggest thing I had done was steal from an old job. And something inside of me, you know, and, of course, the woman who was mentoring me said, you've got to make that right. You know, so you can't just mm-hmm. hold that inside of yourself and go to that secret with your grave. And so at first I was completely terrified because I was like, oh, my life is ruined. I'm going to go to jail. They're going to press charges, you know, and all mm-hmm. of this stuff. Like I had all of this fear. But what I did was um, I sat in three by three and I just said, like, help me find 
the the openness to accept what I've done. Like, help me find the way to make this right. Show me from within the way to handle this. And, you know, the woman I was working with, my mentor, told me, you know, Adina, it's not going to be time to make that amends to, the, to my former employer until you feel absolute non-resistance to whatever they choose to be the consequence. If you have any fear at all, that's okay, but it means you need to do a little more inner work before you're ready to have the conversation. You really need to be at a place of absolute healing inside of yourself and being able to own what you've done and that sort of thing. And she told me if it takes you six months to get there, no rush. Let it take six months. And I was like, well, I'll take six months before I'll get thrown in jail. That's okay. <laughs> I'm not in a hurry for that. And, um, but what, ha- what ended up happening was wow. I became completely at peace within four days. Four days. Wow. Because I was wow. just so open and willing. So to answer your question, what you're saying about, you know, those sorts of things, so that would have been something that would have eaten away at me until the day I died. Like I would have had this dirty secret, like this I'm Mm -hmm. bad part of me or that sort of thing. But when I really let it open up and let it be free and had the conversation and went back and made the amends, and it was just, you know, so well-received and such a beautiful forgiving conversation on their part with me, it was like... I reached a level of freedom I didn't even know was possible. You don't know how much these little tiny secrets or little tiny lies that we tell, like little white lies and things Mm -hmm. like that, like everything is like kind of clogging up the pipes to our highest sense of self and our highest power. So when we clear that stuff out, we have this like level of freedom and peace and comfort within our own skin that I never even knew was possible. So you see, do you see the point that I'm trying to make? It's like, I didn't really forget and I didn't, but I did perceive it differently, find compassion and forgiveness for myself and then willingness to deal, you know, just have any consequence that would have come down. And so that absolute non-resistance and that peace before the conversation was had was what I was looking Mm -hmm. for. And it's really the key to life. We can't have anything in our lives until we are the match to it on the inside. You know, like if we go through our lives and feel, for example, poor or feel unhealthy or feel like we're carrying around too much weight, when we're feeling like that, we're not in the place of allowing in the solution. And so once you get to that place of just acceptance, this is where I am, and I know that it's possible for this to be different, and I'm willing to listen to that small, still voice within to take the baby steps to work my way towards it and to release the resistance I have to it. And that's when stuff starts really opening up. And that's when, you know, synchronicities start happening and life just seems really magical. So, um, yeah, so powerful. So, so, so is, it, is it your basic belief that um, the questions that we have at certain times of our lives, we, we really do have the answers if we just can get to a place where we can listen to ourselves? Uh, always. I think that within the question, the answer is born, and it is answered right away. It's just our ability to be able to hear it or not, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And so our mm-hmm. work isn't to, like, figure out what the answer is. Our work is to be able to get into tune to be able to be in alignment with letting the solution flow into our lives. Hmm. That's a really good point. Listeners, if you've just joined in, we're talking with Dina Proctor on how to achieve happiness in nine minutes a day. And she's the author of the best-selling book, Madly Chasing Peace, How I Went from Hell to Happy in Nine Minutes a Day. 
how would you, what would you recommend to someone who um, is having a lot of challenges in their life right now? Um, what would be the first step that they could take to get out of the rhythm that they're in, which isn't it's, being helpful? Yeah, I get that because it's the momentum. You know, when we have a momentum going, like if you're driving a car and you have a momentum going of 90 miles an hour, it's harder to be able to stop that car and turn it around or have it go in another direction than if the car is Mm -hmm. just kind of idling along at five miles an hour, right? So when you have a momentum Mm -hmm. to something and you have something that's been going on, maybe it's a physical condition, maybe it's a relationship issue, maybe it's a financial struggle, whatever's been going on, when it has a lot of history behind it, that's what I mean about it kind of going quickly. And it's like, how do I even stop this thing? I like, I want to get off and how do I stop it? So the best uh-huh. thing, like what I've learned, and this is why I love that three by three was shown to me because when I've talked to neuroscientists and I've talked to cell biologists, I know that the way that we begin to change our lives is to begin to change the way that we think it involves rewiring our brains. And what I've been told from people, you know, experts in neurosciences and stuff that understand my method and have heard, you know, my different breakthroughs and transformations mm-hmm. and healings I've had is that interrupting that old subconscious programming on a constant, consistent basis, like, you know, three minutes, three times a day or one minute, an hour or whatever works for you, but just something, it doesn't have to be long, but it needs to be consistent and relatively frequent, like definitely more than once a day. Mm-hmm. When we start to do that, we start to create space for different thoughts to be there. So you could start with something like, say that you're stuck in, um, you know, a, a something, something physical with the body or a relationship or with the financial situation. So the first thought that you may start thinking is, might just be, I'm, you know, like, if there's another way to see this, I'm open and willing to see it. I'm open and willing to say that I don't know all the solutions, and I'm curious and I'm open to see if there's something else out there that I've never even, you know, that I'm not even privy to, like a a solution that would just be something I've never heard of. Because most of us Mm -hmm. are using our limited thinking, and all we Mm -hmm. do in our limited thinking is rehash all of what we normally do is rehash, like, oh, that won't work, or oh, that won't work, or I've tried this before. And we're just using past experience to try and predict the future. When really, Mm -hmm. if we can just get to the place where we more like clean the slate and weed the garden, then we can create space for that transformation. So for someone who's struggling in that depth, first of all, I don't believe that any of us are meant to go through life alone. You know, like the the very first thing that really helped me save my life was having a mentor guiding me through, right? So Mm -hmm. talking to another human being, a friend, a therapist, a counselor, mentor, whatever, and then consider and see if this resonates with you to have little moments of silence, even if it's just three deep breaths where all you do is you breathe in the word peace and exhale, you know, the word and just exhale release, you know, something Mm -hmm. like that where you just take three deep breaths and you do it maybe once an hour or every couple of hours throughout the day, just something simple like that I think can make a profound difference. But a lot of people when I suggest something like that, they kind of roll their eyes. Like It was like the way that I balked when I was told to meditate. Like, what the heck is that going to do? Like, how is three-day breath going to even have? But that's the work. It's constantly mm-hmm. and consistently interrupting all of those sixty to 80,000 thoughts that we have every single day that are 
really, you know, it's, that's why we're stuck is because our mind keeps thinking the same thing over and over again. When we can, mm-hmm. we don't even have mm-hmm. to think differently. We just need to interrupt the way that we're thinking now because that's mm-hmm. what creates those little cracks in the little space where new ideas and new solutions can occur. Interesting. That's really good advice. Really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but what what do you do with the people that just can't seem to find, you know, three minutes, three times a day or whatever, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I guess it's really, it's just really a personal decision that, I mean, everything that you're talking about requires commitment for change. Yeah. And and it almost always involves hitting bottom before you're willing to make a change. In other words, the pain becomes so severe that you've got to do something. Something has to change for the for the better or for the worse, but something is and will change. Yeah. I mean, there is, at hitting rock bottom, you're given the gift of desperation because you're either going up or you're going out. You know, like there's no yeah. there, there's no other option. So it is. You know, I, I had that gift of desperation. But I don't believe you have to hit rock bottom in order to start climbing up. But the thing is, is that you've got to want it. You have to want mm-hmm. it. It can't be, oh, I don't feel like going to the gym, but I guess I'll go and swing around this weight for a half an hour and just walk on the treadmill for a half an hour. If you're kind of like have that a little bit of like, you know, the attitude of I don't really, I don't want to, but I should, probably won't mm-hmm. get there. This has to be something mm-hmm. you really, really want. And also, because um, a lot of people, you know, genuinely want it, but then they're thinking like, my gosh, I don't need one more thing on my to-do list. Where am I going to fit in these meditations? And so, Instead of thinking it as it as oh my gosh one more thing to fit into my already overwhelmed schedule, think of it instead as you know what if this method has something to it and there is value for me here, I'm open and willing to be shown on where this will fit in my schedule. I've heard mm-hmm. a saying I don't know even know who to credit to it might just be like an old like Buddhist saying or something like that an old spiritual wisdom but it's like the saying is if you have time to meditate meditate for 20 minutes. If you don't have time to meditate, meditate for an hour, (laughs) right? Because the (laughs) the thing is, is that our busyness is not really real because there's no such thing as time. So it's, Uh it's a symptom of the lack of inner peace we have inside of ourselves. Because have you ever, let me ask you this, Denise, have you ever had like, okay, for example, say that you've been procrastinating on a project for like a month and now you're leaving uh-huh. tomorrow morning and you're going on your dream vacation for the next two weeks. <laughs> like, don't you have that like fire inside of you? Like I'm getting this project done. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so it, yeah, like, it's, it, 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 yeah, it, it equates to if I know I've got company coming, I go through this house like a cyclone the day before. Yes, and don't you get find everything that you in get, order? You get more done in like a half of a day than you've gotten done in the last three weeks. You know what I'm saying? Because Absolutely. you get into this mentality of this is happening, this is happening now, and I'm in the zone mm-hmm. and I'm getting it done. So if yep. you get into this like rhythm where it's like I am the most productive that I have been, and you know that feeling of being in the zone. That's what I'm talking about because when we're too busy, it's really because we're not cultivating being in the zone because when we are in alignment 
and we have to make phone calls. When we are not in alignment and making phone calls, it's going to be leaving a lot of messages, missed connections, not working out. It's going to take a lot of time. When we are in alignment and in the zone, we're going to be calling people, and they're going to be answering right away. They're going to have the solution at their fingertips. Everything just clicks. It goes much more efficiently. When you need an inspired mm-hmm. idea, the inspired idea is at the surface. And so that's why I love that thing about meditate for longer if you're busier, because the busyness is not – it's, it, you're, uh, it's a symptom that we have lack of centeredness inside of ourselves. As our centeredness increases, our dizziness decreases because our lives go more in flow and are more productive and more efficient. If that, I hope I'm mm-hmm. making sense, <laughs> right? No, you are. No, no, you definitely are making sense. Um, yeah. I so said it just, it just, um, you know, going back to. You gotta want it. You have to make the commitment to do it. You know, for the change. And yeah. um, no one can can give that to you. That's that's a decision that has to be made on your own. Yeah. And with yeah. some people, they never make it. Others decide to do it. I mean, you know, we see it. We see it demonstrated all the time, where you you have people, you know, out on the streets, and they're they're drug addicts. Their lives have been destroyed. They're destroying themselves physically. They just can't get themselves there. Yeah, I get it because I was like that for so many years. I get how that feels, you know. And we are where we are. And I really believe that every single person on this planet is doing the best that they can from where they are and from what they can see from where they are. You know, like at one time, it made sense to me to get up in the morning and drink before I went to work and steal money once I got to work. Like that was the best I could do at that time. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that was really the best that I could do at that time. So mm-hmm. I have, like, I get it when people are so stuck. Like, I so get it. But when you want it, nothing can get in your way. But you're right. Like, nobody can do your push-ups for you. You know, like, nobody else can get your body into shape. Nobody else mm-hmm. can lift weights for you. And nobody else can. So it's not a guilt-inducing should. That's not what I'm saying at all. But it's like, what I'm trying to point out is once you get that passion, just get out of the way because stuff is going to start transforming. Mhm, mhm, no, yeah well, um in your in chapter four of your book, you talk about um mending the past yeah what um what do you mean by that? Well, that chapter is largely about when I went back to my old employer and talked about um the money that I had stolen, so mm-hmm. the the mending of the past is looking back and seeing what do I need to clean up? What do I do to, need to do to sweep off my side of the street? What do I need to go back and make right, whether it's money I stole or people that I've wronged or hurt or whatever mm-hmm. it is? And so in going back and doing that, that's when we're cleaning out those little tiny secrets that are preventing us from being our best selves. And we don't realize. It's kind of like um, like a just a small residue that builds up very little, very little, very little. But after many years, mm-hmm. it's like this weight that we have inside of ourselves. You know, like, um, so mm-hmm. when we have things that we're not cleaning up inside of our lives. And so it's just about being as free and as clear, but also, you know, in alignment. It's not about just 
um, telling people, I don't like your hairstyle just because we're quote unquote being honest. You know, it's not, it's, it's not about being like rude or aggressive or anything like that. It's just about being in total compassion for yourself and mm-hmm. owning anything that you have done or anything that you have been that doesn't feel like it's in alignment with who you want to be and where you're going and just owning that part of it, admitting it, having a conversation about it and finding peace with, you know, in whatever way possible. And so that's what I mean about mending the past because when you clean out that stuff, you reach this depth and level of freedom, or I did anyway, that I never even knew was possible. I never knew what it was like to not have a secret. You know, like I wasn't hiding my drinking anymore. I wasn't hiding stealing anymore. I wasn't hiding, like everything was just out there. And I, and I wasn't mm-hmm. hiding the fact that I was even in addiction recovery. I hid that for six months. Like, I didn't want any – I had so much shame about having to go to addiction recovery. And then I started admitting it. And then I write a book about it. It's like you have so much freedom when you're, you're just kind of like nothing can get stuck on you, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that. Well, it, it sounds very familiar to um, the strategies of, say, um, Alcohol Anonymous or – um, other programs that have been in existence in the past um, where, you know, you you, you got to go back and say you're sorry to a lot of people and, and change things. Um, and, and two, maybe it's a way to reframe your, your you know, your bad behavior. <laughs> it's, like, it's like you said, you know, it, it's like you said, um, kind of clear space in your mind where I'm going to, do this exercise so that I know this is the right thing to be doing versus the wrong things that I was doing. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's it's yeah. it's not a game by any means. It's it's I really look at it as as an exercise for change. Yeah, I love that an exercise for change. I think that that's really great because that's where that's that's you taking out the weeds, and then when the weeds are removed, you can start planting the roses, and the weeds won't choke them out. Mhm, mhm, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, when you know, we've been talking a lot about how our thoughts can change our, our, um, the way we create our own reality, and actually how we, um, um how would you say um influence influence others and how they mm-hmm. and how they see reality um, what are your thoughts on that well i do know this from being in my kind of state of higher consciousness is that mm-hmm. we and this may sound weird and you know so i can explain it but we don't have the ability <laughs> to create in another person's reality so we mm-hmm. have the ability to create in our own realities and those that are on the same, I'll use the word vibration, those that are on the same mm-hmm. vibration as us are drawn to us in terms of co-creating or whatever, you know. But I mm-hmm. I, I believe, like, I, I feel my work, like, yes, I feel like, because I'm a coach and I work with people and my mission is to just be a bright shining light and if people are drawn to that energy and feel uplifted by the message, like I love that. But I can't, it's, it's interesting. So I wrote about this in the book too. There was a woman 
that I was working with in the addiction recovery program, like when I had six months of sobriety under my belt, I started coaching people. And there was one woman uh-huh. who texted me. I was working with her really closely. We were great for several months. And she texted me one day and just said, I'm drunk. I'm at a bar and I'm getting drunk. Oh, and no. <laughs> I just no. felt like I'm a failure. I have to go get her. I have to save her. I have to rescue her. You know, like I just had this whole, mm-hmm. first of all, all the self-hatred. <laughs> what did I do? I'm a mess as a mentor, you know, the whole thing. And then, mm-hmm. then the urge was I have to go get her and I have to fix her. But when I sat in meditation, the answer became very clear that that was not the thing to do because I can't make a person drink, but I also can't keep them sober. That's up to them. I can, I, and, and that's why I loved what my mentor told me. She said, Dina, I walk the path that I walk, and I can extend my arms to another, but I cannot leave my path to go help another because when you do that, you unplug yourself. And if you're unplugged, it's like taking your oxygen mask off to try and help somebody mm-hmm. else put on theirs. Mm-hmm. You're not connected to your oxygen. You're not going to be any good to them anyways. So I had to just, I really learned that lesson from the inside. It was like, if she wants to walk this path with me, she's welcome to come back. And it killed me. It was like, but I can't leave my path to go rescue her. It was very painful for me to realize that I can't save another or do this for them or make them want this or, you know, that sort of thing. That's what I mean about not being able to create in somebody's reality. Like we can't make somebody want something else, you know, like if we're working with a personal trainer and the personal trainer says, you know, okay, do the push-ups this way, lift the weights that way, do this running this way. And we kind of don't do it with the passion. We're not going to get it, but that trainer can't Mm -hmm. give us the passion. That's what I mean. She can't create that for us. She can't jump into our reality and zap us with wanting it or like that is what I mean. We have to all individually. Yeah. yeah you know what I mean? So we what's can kind of, what's kind of Yeah. yeah go ahead. It's, kind of, it's, it's kind of like um, in, in translation, it's enabling, of, you know, it's enabling people that have addictions. Um, and it's, it's one of the toughest paths for loved ones to be on. Um, because mm-hmm. because you you love your your you know your family and your friends and you know if someone is going through a difficult time with addiction knowing you know when to help them and when not to help them it's almost an impossible choice I get what you're saying I know and the only way I would ever have guidance is only by following my intuition because that's where the, what's best for every person, all people involved, is always being given through the intuition. And so when we follow that, then we know we're mm-hmm. on the right path, you know. Because on the outside, mm-hmm. it might have looked like, oh, I should go get that girl and dry her out and make her sleep on my couch and take away the booze and all mm-hmm. that stuff. It might look like that would be of best service to her. But I knew in my heart that that was not the way to handle this. Like something inside of me just knew. And several weeks later, she came back and we worked together again. She, was, she just, you know, got it out of her system and came back and then she was done for good. But, um, but I knew in my blood, and that doesn't mean that's how to handle every situation. I'm not saying that at all. It was that was where my internal guidance took me then. So maybe with another person, my internal guidance would say, you know, go get them or whatever it is, you know. But um, <clears throat> so it's not about how to handle the situation in particular. It's about the thing that, I, I, first of all, listen to the intuitive guidance more than the voice in my head that tells me to do the whatever it thinks that I should do. 
yeah, yeah. So that's 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 what I'm getting at. That intuitive guidance will never lead us wrong because it sees the bigger picture and how it's all going to work out in the end. Oh, that's that's really good. Do you um, do you actually have um, like a physical practice, and or how do you um, counsel people? Well, it's all through like Skype and phone. I've had I have some clients. I work with clients in lots of different time zones and several different countries and stuff. So, um, and half of them I've never even met in person. So I work usually virtually, but also like locally or when I'm traveling, I do presentations at wellness centers and, you know, bookstores or yoga studios or wherever um, that I'm invited to share about meditation. So, or, you know, speaking to groups and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I love both. Well, that's good. That's really good. Um, you know, for our listeners, I, I'd like them to know how they could reach you. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, pretty much probably just through the website, which is the same as the title of the book, madlychasingpeace.com. And so all the contact information and everything that I do and all of that is right there in one place on one website. Oh, excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Easy peasy. <laughs> Well, it's it's really been great talking with you. And um, for our listeners, um, Dina Proctor, How to Achieve Happiness in Nine Minutes a Day. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on my program again. And um, I wish you a very successful remainder of the year in your work. And um, where can they find your book, Madly Chasing Peace, How I Went From um, Hell to Happy in Nine Minutes a Day? <laughs> yeah, all the links of where it's available are on my website, but it's in, I did there. An audio, okay. yeah, I did an audio version, so there's an audio book, there's, you know, the Kindle version or the e, e-book version, it's Amazon, oh, good, Barnes & Noble, good. all that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Oh, excellent, excellent. I'm, I'm glad you shared that with us. All right, well, we've run out of time, but thank you so much again for being with us. You are enlightenment. <laughs> It was such a joy, Denise. Thank you for inviting me. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, listeners, that concludes our program for today. Please tune tune in again next Wednesday. We'll have another wonderful program for you. Until then, take care. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit Got Cancer? Now What? for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What?